So because you asked some questions about translation, I thought we would at least cover it briefly tonight. This is talking about how we get the English Bible. Most of us don't even know where our Bible is, you know? But anyway, just in case you really care. And I also recognize that, you know, I'm talking to a group of Americans who could care less about 1979, let alone what happened in 1611 or any of those things. But that's okay. For a moment, we're going to pretend we're Europeans and we care about history, all right? Tonight, you're all members of the European Union. If you want to go deeper on this subject, I've added a sixth book now to the books that we've read for this series. And this book I recommend, it's How to Choose a Translation for All It's Worth. It's written by Gordon Fee and Mark Strauss. They also wrote another book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Two pretty decent books, but this is one of the few books written on just, you know, like how could you pick a translation and why should you pick one or the other. They don't try to make recommendations but they spend time talking about the development of translations and just the theory of translation. I'm borrowing pretty heavily from some of their chapters tonight to give you some examples that they give. And I think what we're doing tonight is having spent so much time wrestling with difficult issues like inspiration and inerrancy, you know, there's still work to be done when it comes down to just, even if you agree on the text itself, how to translate it into English or any other language. Because translation by itself has limitations. So let's just talk about the two translation methods in a kind of a middle ground. The first is called formal equivalence. And it is also known as a word-for-word -word or literal translation. I've heard Christians who say, like, give me a translation. I want the literal translation. I want a word-for-word -word translation. What it says is what I want. I don't want any interpretation of my translation. And we're going to talk a little bit about where that comes from tonight. Formal equivalence is trying to come up with a translation that is as close on a word-for-word -word basis to the original, including sentence order, syntax, so that it has the same flavor of word order even. The other side is known as functional equivalence. This is where you're trying to be accurate about the meaning. People who are going for functional equivalence are more concerned that people understand the meaning of the text then they do that it be as close word for word. Now, as soon as I put up functional equivalence, the people who detract from this always say, well, that just means you're interpreting or you're paraphrasing. Actually, as you'll see in a little bit, what they're trying to do is make sure that we understand what the original says. And there is a middle ground, which some people would call a mediating effort or a mediating equivalent that's kind of like a middle ground. Sometimes it's a little bit more literal and sometimes a little bit more idiomatic so that we can get the meaning across. So let me just give you a couple examples so you know what I'm talking about. So this kind of comes down. And let's take some examples from French, you know? We're going to be all over tonight. We're talking about history, you're talking about French. It's like, like humanities class in here tonight. Let's take the French phrase, okay? If you were to take this phrase, voulez-vous le petit déjeuner, right, by itself, if you were going to translate that using the literal method, the word-for-word -word method, you translate it like this. Want you the little lunch? That is a word-for-word -word translation. Okay, voulez-vous, want you, petit déjeuner, the little lunch. So if you're going to do it on a literal translation, you'd say, want you the little lunch. If you're reading this in the Bible, you're lost. <laughs> Especially since a more functional equivalent of this translation actually means, do you want breakfast? Because as many of you who've taken French know, petit déjeuner, even though it means little lunch, actually is the meaning of breakfast. If you're reading this in a Bible, you're going to want to know 
for example, was Jesus cooking breakfast on the shore when Peter was fishing, or was it a little lunch, or what was it? Does it matter? Maybe in this case, it's a silly example. Here's another silly example from the French. Voulez-vous une pomme de terre? Okay, which means... Literally translated, want you an apple of earth. Okay? And we all know means, do you want a potato? All right? So the reason I'm pointing out these kind of silly examples is because anytime you translate, whether it's sacred text or just something as silly as breakfast or a potato, you have difficulty because languages just don't match up. You know that there are some languages that have many, many different forms of the same word. You know, we say this all the time in our churches about the different forms of the word love in Greek, but there are some languages they're trying to translate into that the word and, like the conjunctive and, has four different words, and the way you use it differs greatly. So you can't interchange them. And it actually affects the meaning if you use the wrong one. So we always have difficulty when we're translating. That's the first step is to think, this is not an easy job. Here's some examples from a biblical translation of the difference between formal and functional. So, for example, in 2 Samuel 18.25, the King James Version says, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. All right, that's how you might render it literally or as close to the word for word and formal equivalence. The NRSV also follows a more formal equivalence, although it's not as close as the King James Version. If he is alone, there are tidings in his mouth. All right. Some of you who've studied different languages might think, yeah, I kind of get the clue of that, right? The NIV says, if he is alone, he must have good news. So the words are changed just so that we get the accurate meaning more than that we get the exact words. I think that there's two levels of interpretation that sometimes have to happen if we preserve the original and translate it literally, is then we have to go back and think, what did that phrase mean? And there are many times, by the way, that some mediating text will leave it that way because it's important for us to put ourselves in the ancient context. But there are times when they think, you know, news in his mouth is just too obscure for anyone to really get the direct meaning. Let's put in something that's clear to anyone picking it up. All right, there's enough interpretation to do in the Bible without having to just understand what the words mean. So those are the translation methods. Here's a chart that I've put up that show you different translations in the English and kind of where they fall on the spectrum. So if you look at the kind of the formal equivalents, the ones that are trying for a more literal, more syntax-driven word-for-word translation, that would be like the NASB, the King James, the New King James, the RSV, the NRSV. They kind of fall into that camp more. I mean, as you get to the NRSV, it's moving closer to what I call a mediating position in the middle. The functional equivalents, you probably have heard of, like the New Living Translation or the Living Bible. All right? There was one that came out in the late 60s, early 70s called the Good News Bible that was written more in kind of a vernacular to try to appeal to the hippie generation. Uh, lately, I think in 2005, the message was published. So you guys, some of you know Eugene Peterson's message where, you know, some people would say it's not just a translation, it's an elaboration. You know, like there's actually words added to kind of give a fuller meaning of what this passage is supposed to be. So people who 
love the message or reading it, but you probably should read it with something else that's either a formal or a mediating kind of text so that you can see that's great that he's given it so much color and so much texture to the text, but let's go back to look at what it actually said to make sure that we know where the jumping off points really are. The mediating ones are kind of the NIV, the Jerusalem Bible, the New English Bible. Those are kind of ones that try to walk a middle ground. You guys know that for a long time we've used the NIV in here for a lot of things, mainly because it's the best-selling Bible in the United States, so at least it's the one that most of us probably have. Um, but a lot of times when I'm doing the different studies, I'm looking at ones from different versions. The NASB is kind of hard to read because it tried to, it actually tried, it set out to be a mediating Bible and ended up being very, very formal. But sometimes it's good to go back and get a flavor of how it might have actually been worded because I'm not reading in Greek or Hebrew. That's not my strength. So it helps to have different versions to do. You guys know that these days you can go onto something like BibleGateway.com and get every version, practically every version. I don't think the NRSV or the RSV is up. But many other versions are just a click away. So that kind of makes it even easier to compare versions uh, if you don't have them. You can just jump online and find them. All right? Questions about those? I, I just had one comment on just kind of the general idea of like, you know, all these are different. Like, I would suggest you would never want to use the message if you're trying to like do a serious study of scripture just because it wouldn't be helpful because it is it, like if you're really trying to like to, let's say take a passage and uh, expo exposit it you know you just right. really want to use the message not because it's wrong or bad it is helpful but as far as devotional the message might be extremely helpful and very productive I mean I just want to kind of point that out like that's why some of these are better in certain circumstances than others okay here's a principle I think I've already kind of pointed out, but I want to make clear. Translation, just the nature of translation, requires some interpretation. It's very difficult to translate without you putting some interpretation in the text. It's almost mandated. I mean, sometimes that, you know, if I were telling you to copy a scroll down, you would think interpretation is a bad idea. Just copy exactly what it says. But that's because you're copying in the same language. We want faithful copies. These days we have it all printed so we don't have to worry about that so much. When it comes to translation, even before we had the printed word, you know, from a printing press, all translation requires some interpretation because you've got to make choices in the language. Look at the word logos. We've talked about that in here a number of times already, how it's translated into the word. That is its primary and most frequent use, but I want you to look at all these verses here that use the same Greek word logos. For example, Matthew 5.37, but let your statement, which is from logos, be yes, yes. Matthew 18.23, a king who wished to settle accounts. Their logos is rendered as accounts. Matthew 21.24, I will also ask you one thing, rendered for, the word thing rendered for logos, yes. Well, like, does uh, like, literal translations, um, do they, are more of those Logos words more the same? That's a very interesting question. The answer is no. I mean, even the ones who try to go for a very close literal nature will not translate a king who wished to settle words. Because the word Logos, or the lexem, has so many shades of meanings. When somebody asks the question, what is the literal meaning of this word? The answer is, well, it has all these meanings, right? So. It actually is to point out that even the ones that go for a formal equivalence on a word-for-word -word basis can't do what they claim to set out to do. 
the language just doesn't permit them. It would lead to a nonsensical result. In all other cases, they're going to adhere to it as much as possible, but they can't adhere to the rule 100%. You know, like in, in Mark 8.32, he was stating the matter plainly, where matter is rendered for logos there. Or this report, report being rendered for logos, this report concerning him went out in Luke 7.17, and you can see all these different other words where it's accounting, complaint, exhortation, all of these are places where some will try to stick as close as possible, but the point is that it doesn't have one definition. So if you ask somebody who's doing a formal equivalent, they say, well, but in that case, it's still literal because it has multiple meanings. All right, you've got to kind of make a decision when you're doing the interpretation. So that's a good reason to check different versions because we're trying to pick what word in English comes the closest when a word in the original language has shades of meaning? This comes up a lot in the New Testament with words like grace. You know, the Greek word charis could be, could be rendered as grace. It could be rendered as favor. Like, we have sometimes to look at different places and different translations will make a distinction because of the context that it's in. Again, the reason that it's helpful to consult various versions and look even at the margin notes where somebody drops a note and says, or it could be rendered this or this. So it gives us an idea that there's a little bit of an art to this, and it's not always going to be precise. So I say translation requires interpretations to give words their proper meaning within the context. The same word, in this case logos, is going to be rendered differently as it's translated depending on the context it's in. You could see that if we just blindly just put in word everywhere, it just wouldn't make sense. And you see that even the formal equivalents agree with that. Here's some other ways that the language requires us to make word choices. In Greek, if I say this word right, it's poeo. It's the word that you put in front, say, to make something, to create something. All right? So you can see that in the biblical language, you'll say make adultery, but that doesn't make sense to us, to make adultery. We say commit adultery. That's from Matthew 5.32 or from Matthew 6.22. To make alms. Well, actually the meaning is to give to the needy. But the way it's said literally in the Greek is to make alms. Imagine if you're reading in English. It's like you should make alms. Like, okay, just make them? Right? I mean, the meaning is lost because the point is you should be giving to the needy. Or in Mark 3.24, make 12. But it really means to appoint 12. So in each of these cases, if you, if you just translate literally, you would have these examples. Like, make sufficient crowd means satisfy the crowd. Make power means to show strength. Make mercy is to show mercy. Make yourselves purses when he tells the disciples, go out. Like, make yourselves purses. Like, does he order them to actually sit down and stitch purses? No. What he's really saying is provide yourself a purse. But literally said in the Greek, it's make yourself purses. Like, go get some. Make the vengeance is to do justice or to give justice. Make truth is to do the things that are true. Do the truth. Make the law is to keep the law. Make the work is to accomplish the work. So, I, by the way, the list that I got this from, there's like about 30 other examples where this verb form is used. If we were reading it literally, we'd have difficulty understanding what is it that's being commanded here? What is it that's being said? All right, as with all things 
setting aside the difficulty of just taking the words, there's the difficulties that we just have with language. Some things just aren't going to translate as easily, like plays on words. In Isaiah 5.7, it says, The Lord looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. That sounds nice. Like he looked for one thing, but he saw the other. And he looked for this thing, but he saw that thing. It still has meaning in our language, but what we can't communicate is that this is a play on words. It's almost a pun in a way. Because the Hebrew word for justice, mishpat, is so close to the word for bloodshed, mishpach, that they're almost like you can hear the sound that he's looking for one thing, but he found the other. It'll almost be like a rhyme in our words. Or something that was so close that you would feel the irony. The word for righteousness in Hebrew is siddakah, and the word for distress is close, and I can't say it. <laughs> but it's so close that if you saw them next to each other in the printed scroll, or if you just heard them, you would feel the irony that the Lord was looking for this, but he got this, and it has the opposite meaning even though they're so close. That's lost in our scriptures. So there may be notes that might try to do that, or commentaries that will pick that up, and that's why we read commentaries to try to understand that yes, we can still get the meaning of what this means, but we miss the beauty of the original language. There's words that have double meanings. That's also difficult to translate for us. Or allusions to earlier text implied in the language. Like when Paul says, like, I was a wise builder. Like you think, wise builder? Like builders are wise? I thought they should be skilled or craftsmen or something, but wise? But that's because he's alluding to a whole section where he's talked about the wisdom of building upon Christ. And the wisdom relates to Christ in 1 Corinthians. So when he comes and says, I'm a wise builder, he's actually trying to tie it in. But if we translate the way that we would, to make it make sense, we might miss that. So we have to make decisions. Do we leave the word wise builder, even, even though that doesn't really make sense to us? Like theological terms, we struggle sometimes in interpretation to decide what do we put in. Like Paul uses the word justification. Some translations say, let's change that to made right with God. Nobody really understands what it means to be justified. It's a theological term that Paul had used. So some translations will actually translate terms because they think it'll add more meaning, while other interpreters will say no. I mean, even if it is a theological term, we should maintain it. You saw this decision even when we were dealing with the word God breathed, how some translations just said, let's just leave it in the way it is in the Greek, God breathed. Others translate it into a theological term the other way. It means it's inspired. And we looked at how they had to make a decision, like what's better, leave it in the way it was, or somehow explain what that meant. So there's a decision being made. Obviously, figurative language, metaphors, poetry, idiomatic expressions, like in the Hebrew, cover his feet, like when it said that Saul covered his feet, like meant that he went to relieve himself. We probably would never know that. There's a decision that has to be made. Do you put that in there? Or do you just leave it in there where people don't understand? If you're going to try to follow the literal approach, you just say, and Saul covered his feet. And most of us would be like, what does that mean? Right? Maybe from the story, though, we get the idea. So some translations will say he went to relieve himself. Some translations will say he went about his business, which is still kind of vague. <laughs> like, <laughs> what does that mean? But the point is, that's what the translator is faced with, and that's why we have a little bit of a job to do for trying to grab all of our authoritative points out of a translation. It might be helpful to check what you're reading against some other things, and that's why we have people who study the ancient languages. Figures of speech, irony, hyperbole, sometimes we can pick up on this in the language, 
Other times it's lost on us because it's kind of contained in the language itself. We even dealt with this before when we looked at what does 40 days and nights mean. Is it 40 days and 40 nights, or is that a figure of speech that was used both Hebrew and it seems carried over into the New Testament times. We went back and forth on that, but just even that discussion, the frequency of numbers and the frequency of things like 40 make a difference. We have to understand what is he saying. Some cultural elements are hard to translate. Like, if you've been in church long enough, you might understand that a scribe is not somebody who's copying text, but a teacher of the law. But if you haven't been around long enough, some Bibles translate it. Instead of scribe, they'll replace it with teacher of the law. Instead of Sanhedrin, they might actually change it to the Jewish high court so that people can understand. Instead of the Jordan, they'll actually insert a word like the Jordan River so that people understand. Maybe everyone reading the scriptures would know what the Jordan was. And maybe the rest of us are thinking of Michael, you know. Tore his clothes. Like most of us who've been around long enough know that's an allusion to rendering your clothes or just ripping them off, right? like that kind of act of grief, but some people will insert, like, tore his clothes in grief to explain, like, why would the high priest just stand up or some person just stand up and tear their clothes? Like, what does that mean? I don't understand the illusion. For example, Jesus is described as reclining in the house. What does that mean? To most of us in plain English, that means he took a nap. But to the Jewish custom, reclining in the house meant he was eating at the banquet table. He is a guest, and at formal banquets, you reclined at the table. So you might not pick that up if it just translated it literally, reclining in the house. So some translations will help you in that, and they'll, ex they'll just change it around, where he went to eat at the banquet or something like that, where you think, hey, what are you doing with the words? Well, I'm trying to make it so that you can understand it, because you might miss the whole point if you just heard that he was taking a nap. Weights, measures, and money we've seen trying to understand what a talent is, like what a denarius is, like what does that mean in terms of like how much money are we talking about? Some translations keep it exactly the way it is, and they'll drop a footnote. Like this is approximately one year's wages. Or they'll tell you like this is a lot of money, or this is an insignificant sum, or this is a day's wage, just so that we can get some idea. What is the weight? What's a cubit? Trying to understand these things so they have some meaning for us. And... I put up here the use of inclusive gender terms, which has become something that people are rediscovering. I will say it's not because of any kind of political correctness, although that is part of some other movements. But real honest translators are looking back and saying, you know, just like in English, when we used to say all mankind, we didn't mean just all males. right? We use that word to mean all humankind. So we have to now change the language in the way we're changing it so that people understand that we're not just talking about all men, that it really is all persons. So here's some examples, like if you look at the word Adelphoi in Philippians 4.1, it says, therefore my Adelphoi. Well, what does Adelphoi mean? How do you translate it? It has, again, three different meanings. It could be just your male siblings. It could be just siblings in general, or it could be kind of people who are in close relationship to you, just the way that we use brothers, Right? I mean, if I said, hey, brothers, like you might think, is he just talking to the men in here? Possibly. If I said the word brothers, you might think that might be inclusive. If I said that word even to a group of people that weren't my brothers, you'd think, yeah, he means like his people. And that's exactly what we think Paul means. When he's writing a letter to the entire church and he says, therefore, my brothers, stand firm in the Lord. If we left it as brothers, as some translations do, I think we get the point. We don't think that Paul is excluding women. 
But to be very clear, some translations will say, let's just change that to say, therefore, my brothers and sisters. I noticed in the version of the scriptures you read today, in Psalm 8, right? It was when you were reading the scripture, it said, what is man that you are mindful of him, right? And some translations change that to what is humankind or humanity or what are people that you are mindful of them? Yeah. yeah I, I don't actually think that we, we get that still. I mean, I think there we went to a church one time and uh, they were redneck fundamentalists and they read their English Bibles and when it said, you know, it always said male and him, that was it, you know. So I, I don't actually know that we, you know, I, I think if you're more intelligent, then you might say, sure, here he's referring to everyone, or, uh, but I'm not sure we actually understand, I'm not sure culturally we understand it because I think we read too much back into it, you know, we still use he for God. Uh, and some translations don't, right? Some translations really try and break away from that tradition they um, I've been in lots of relation, uh, arguments and friendships with people who don't get this concept at all. And they read it. So it says he here. God is a he. Well, no. God includes the masculine and the feminine. So, you know, that's why it's okay to pray if we, if, you know, if we say, refer to she, those kinds of things. I mean, that would be a very uh, interesting task if, if instead of saying he, God, saying she, God. This is me tearing my clothes right now. <laughs> Let me, let me respond to you before we uh, get thrown out of here. Um, first, I think that you're right that we don't get it, but the concept is not foreign even outside of Scripture. Like if you read the Declaration of Independence, it says that all men are created equal. Like nobody. Now, you might argue at the time, yeah, that's right, because slaves weren't included and women didn't have the right to vote, but, but the, the statement itself was meant to cover all mankind. We understood it. And that's why up here you'll see, like, men is being rendered as persons of humanity like places where he is replaced with they. Fathers are rendered more as ancestors. Sons are children or descendants. Because that's what the actual language meant. I mean, especially when you look at a language like Greek, like you have a masculine form, you have a feminine form, you have a neutered form, right? Like, so we can actually kind of look at that first. We can look at the context. We can look at, like, he's writing to a whole church. He's clearly not writing to men only, right? Jesus is making a universal declaration. He's not just talking to the male people. Okay, I agree. And I think you're right that if we change the language, that helps. Here's where I won't go, though. It is true that in the Old Testament, there are a few allusions to God in feminine terms, like as a hen gathers around her chicks or whatever the allusion is. There's a couple. But for the most part, there's a deliberate attempt to refer to God in masculine terms. Now, God is not a man. God is spirit. And I agree with you that God is neither male or female. But the reason that this battle here has run into so much trouble is because people have wanted to take it to the step beyond that. So that when Jesus refers to the Father as the Father, he makes it clear that that's the way we are to refer to him. I mean, he gives us language like our Father and Abba, and this is the way that he refers to him, that I think that I'm comfortable all of this. I'm not comfortable saying that I can say that, that God is a queen instead of a king, or that God is she instead of he it actually does injury to this effort to try to take it to the furthest effort because then people think, I think this is some sort of agenda and you're going to have a hard enough time convincing those people in Victorville that you're talking about to accept inclusive language that's authorized by the, by the translation. It's actually in the translation already than it is to kind of give them a new politic of thinking. Yes? Um, I have a question with like 
even to the inclusive gender idea, which sort of touches on the same idea, but not quite, I think. Um, so even you said like some of those, like when we read the word like men, that in some context, like, or even like the, the Greek word there, like it can mean male siblings or it can mean siblings. Like men could mean persons or humanity, but it could mean men as opposed to women. Like uh, there's some then interpretation already included in it because like you already do have people who believe it's like all inclusive and people who believe it's just male inclusive. Um, and so I feel like, yeah, I was curious how they would make that distinction other than just like, well, we think this one means this. Like, isn't inherently that part of an agenda one way or the other of where that line is drawn? And even the same thing I think that applies with the whole father idea of like, well, if we have Jesus referring to God the Father, but to God the ancestor, like, just using that right, word right there. Like, and so I, I'm not sure how that. I think the way they do it is most translators will take the position that if the meaning is clear, there is no doubt that this is a universal declaration, not just to men, but to men and women, that we will make the gender inclusive term. If there's a theological question, actually most translations don't touch it. The ones that do touch it, then you're right, they do have some sort of bias. Although I would point out that everybody's got some bias and some interpretation to begin with, but some are beyond doubt, you know? Like if, if, if it says like, I will make your descendants as numerous as something, you're like, yeah, I don't think he just means one descendant or the other, right? Or for, because of all your ancestors, like he's just not meaning like just the fathers, like he's probably meaning all the ancestors. But if there is doubt, like I said, some of them will just leave it alone. That's a task for the interpreter to do when they read. We're not going to do it. And some will actually push it. There's been a couple versions that are published that will actually treat God, instead of saying father, they use the word parent, right? Because it has that neuter. That's the place where I think that's probably beyond where I'm comfortable going because while there may be a lot of gender bias about all of the scriptures, I don't attribute that to Christ. I just can't. Like, that's not part of my thinking of who Christ is, that he's somehow subject to his time where he becomes a chauvinist because he's born in the first century. I just don't buy that. Monique? I was going to say that, um, could it be that instead of him, like, alluding to an actual, actual gender, he was kind of more alluding to, like, what that position would mean, like, especially to the people at the time, if he was the head of the household, or, like, because it was kind of a patriarchal society that is, like, a position of, like, honor or power or whatever, but not specifically saying that, like, yeah, God in heaven is a man. You know what's interesting about this one word is this is the one instance in scripture that we actually have the Aramaic preserved. Like they thought it was important enough not to even translate it into Greek. So when you have the word Abba or Abba, right? Like they actually thought it was important enough to translate what is in actually all of the Semitic languages means father. Whether you're looking at the Hebrew, the Aramaic, or even the Arabic, they all mean the same thing. When he's on the cross and he says Eloi, Eloi, like they actually kept the Aramaic. Now, I don't think they kept it just to rebut your argument, but what I'm saying is, in this particular case, just by chance, they actually preserved the Aramaic, so we can actually look and say, you know what, they kept the original words for some reason, that gives us further assurance of what he said. Right? It's more like a relational thing, so it's not a male-woman thing, exactly. Maybe it is relational to us, maybe it's the way that he wants us to think about it, but Jesus referred to him as Father and Heavenly Father and, the, you know, the first person of the Trinity is the Father. But you're right, it doesn't convert God into male. I don't believe it gives us license to then say, well, because of that, we can go the other way. Yeah.
Uh, I'm not sure if like you looked into this at all. I'm just curious. Like, so you said that different Bibles will go to different like places along it. Like of where these Bibles fall along with some the gender part of it. Or do you, if you know, like yeah, like if I can go back to my list here, like for example, the RSV. Well, the RSV is kind of older. The NRSV has started to use inclusive language. Like the NIV has not, but the NIV was published in 1973, I think it was. But the TNIV, which is like today's new international version, which is, they have actually thrown out, they don't like it. They're going to just revise the NIV, uh, started to use it. One of the ones that's being used uh, in England uh, is the ESV, I think has come out that might have used it. But I know the NRSV does, right? You guys who use NRSV? And the TNIV tried to do that. So there are some. And then, like I said, there's some that have come out just to be gender inclusive. And those are the ones that tend to push it even further. All right. Here's a couple other things. Just for people who are troubled by gender inclusiveness, this might be the answer you give to your friends in Victorville. Paul himself changed the wording. Himself, when he was stating things from the Old Testament. For example, in Romans 10.15, he cites... Isaiah 52.7. Isaiah 52.7 says, How lovely on the mountain are the feet of him, him, who brings good news. But when Paul recited it, the way he translated it and put it into Romans, he said, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So we should be comfortable with that. And Paul himself recognized that there are places where it should be done. Some people would accuse Paul that he should have done it more himself. In Romans 4, 6, and 7, he's citing Psalm 32, 1. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Again, blessed is he. But Paul, in Romans 4, translates, blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. So I don't think it should make us uncomfortable at all. I actually support it. It's something I'm trying to train myself to because I'm not very good at it. I grew up reading a version. Uh, I grew up reading the RSV and then the NIV, neither of which actually included gender-inclusive terms, so it's like trying to get yourself... Uh, I've noticed Jeremy's very good at it, saying like God reveals God's self instead of God revealing himself, right? Which is the way that I would say it. So, you know, over time, there'll be like a little buzzer, it'll be like a little choke chain. Every time you hear it, you can like press a button and we'll give that remote to Monique. Every time I say it's like he, like, you know, and I'll learn over time. But I don't think there's anything wrong with using the traditional way we've used it because I think we can understand it. If I say my brothers, I don't think most of the women here are going to walk out and feel not included. All right? 